Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to a very special episode of the Lead from the Heart podcast. It's a profound understatement to say that we're living in an extraordinary moment in history. For an uncertain period of time, the coronavirus pandemic has most of us confined to our homes, working away from our colleagues in offices, and attempting to homeschool our children all at the same time. Many of our routines have been upended. Fear is the dominant emotion of the day. And for many of us, we're needing to navigate through all of this while at the same time managing and leading a team of people. Just a few days ago, I went on Twitter and I asked my friends there if it would be useful and valuable to have an episode of our podcast devoted to dealing with the myriad stresses we're all facing. And the overwhelming response was yes. Last week, Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella sent his employees an email where he asserted that, quote, the world right now is in uncharted territory, unquote. Now, this is surely a description we can all relate to, and it's a reminder that ambiguity is often the cause of great distress and confusion for people. We humans like having a far greater sense of security and control than life right now is providing us. And in light of this, I'm honored and profoundly grateful to tell you that Harvard Business School professor Amy Edmondson is my special guest today. You might remember Amy as she was a guest on our podcast a year ago, and her episode ranks as one of the most popular in our podcast history. So what are the most meaningful things leaders can do right now that will not only ensure the most important work gets done, but that they also sufficiently support the psychological and emotional needs of their people at the same time? Well, that's the core question we're about to answer, and Amy's groundbreaking work on psychological safety makes her an invaluable resource to help us all. As you might remember, Amy is repeatedly named to the Thinkers 50 Global Ranking of Management Thinkers, and last year published her best-selling book, The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth. Welcome back, and thank you so very much for joining us on the podcast, Amy Edmondson. Delighted to be here, Mark. Thank you so very much. I know this is late in your first week back, and I'm so very grateful to you, and there are so many things that I'm looking forward to discussing with you, all in the interest of helping our audience maneuver through what's become like so many profound life challenges all at once. But let me just start off by asking, how are you doing? You know, like most universities, Harvard suddenly had to close its campus, and now you're teaching remotely for the first time. How are you feeling, and how's it going? Well, I think it is a, it's a feeling akin to grief. I know that might seem overstated, but I believe many of our students are feeling just profound loss in terms of, you know, their final weeks together before they would have graduated. And certainly my own sons who are in college and are now home with us for the duration are feeling a sense of loss. And meanwhile, we read the news every day and realize that so many people have it much, much worse. And that's a painful realization as well. So these are these are very challenging times. At the same time, it's been extraordinary to watch Harvard and certainly other institutions turn around on a dime. You know, we are a big and traditional place. Yet in the last 10 days, we've managed to put every single class online, get the faculty all trained in doing this and get the students trained in doing this. And they're now scattered around and trying to make it work. 
Well, the word grief is sort of stunning. It hasn't come up so far in my discussions with a lot of different people around this, but I think it's absolutely accurate. I'm curious, can you describe how you pulled all this off? So, you know, I'm thinking about you personally. I'm thinking about how are you putting your own classes online and how are you figuring out how to facilitate that with your students? But you just made the great point that it's not just you, it's the entire university and it's all of the university students, which I'm imagining is somewhere in the neighborhood of 30, 40,000 people that are making this transition. So did you collaborate with other professors? Did somebody step up and facilitate this who had experience? How did you actually do this? Well, I'm at Harvard Business School, which is a very well-run organization, wonderfully enough. And so I don't have a feeling of having done it myself at all. This has been a very centralized effort. A platform had to be picked, a process and a set of expectations for students had to be created and new rules and norms and expectations about class attendance and all of that. That has to be, at least our program has always been one in which that has to be consistent. It can't be different faculty having different standards or different Mm -hmm. media. And so I simply, you know, went to the appointed trainings and stepped right up to do what and learn how to do what I was being asked to do. And how long did it take you in terms of soup to nuts to pull this together? I don't even know how much time you had. Well, you know, it's interesting. The students were going off on spring break about a week and a half ago. And so normally we would, we, meaning the faculty and staff, have a little bit of a break too. I mean, it's not necessarily a vacation, but it's certainly a time to get caught up on other things, to do some reading and writing. and, And for me, working with PhD students and maybe even a little bit of resting as well. And of course, all of that went out the window. And instead, we spent the week largely virtually, but in tremendous number of planning meetings and then training sessions to get up to speed on all of the different features of the program. Well, I sense you're very proud about what you've been able to accomplish in a very short period of time. But as a human being, how are you feeling about losing so many of your routines? And how are you remaining resilient for your own students? Well, I think I just have to. It's not really a choice. And that goes for my sons and my husband, I mean, we're, I suppose if there's a tiny silver lining in this whole thing, it's lovely to have the boys home. It's really rather remarkable how many delicious dinners we've managed to put together, <laughs> sit down and eat as a family. We haven't done, haven't done 10 nights in a row of family dinners in as long as I can remember, since they were small, probably. Are they both going away to school or are they going to Harvard as well? Well, that's actually um, not a contrast. They both go away to school and they both go away to Harvard. (laughs) Okay. You know, it may be right down the street, but they live there in a dorm with everybody else. And, you know, they're not with us during the term time. They're, They're very much away at school. Totally got it. Well, congratulations on raising two kids who are going to Harvard. That's pretty remarkable. They're hard workers. They're really remarkable students, both of them. Chips off the old block. (laughs) (laughs) By coincidence, I have a relative on Wall Street. He works for an advisory firm, and he was telling me just a few days ago that 
because of all the upheaval in business and in the financial markets, stock market going up and down, etc., that his firm has had to revise its economic projections for the next quarter's GDP every single day for the past few weeks. And ordinarily, of course, they'd make one projection, publish it, and sell it, and move on. So with all the financial uncertainty, coupled with the fears around the coronavirus, how long we're all going to be sequestered and when normal life is going to return. How has all of that influenced how you're teaching? So it's not that you're just teaching remotely. You're dealing with a lot of other subterranean issues. I'm curious as to how you're dealing with all of that. You know, Mark, much like your relative, it's a constant updating. I have to say every single day, new decisions and new realizations are coming out and having to be made. And it's quite striking. And today we had a faculty meeting, a remote faculty meeting, 175 people on for the business school on Zoom at the same time, little faces. (laughs) And the dean made the statement, which was kind of astonishing to realize that it was three weeks and one day ago that the business school made the decision to cancel our month of May global field immersion program, which is where we send students in, you know, in groups of about 24 into various companies and countries around the world. And that was, the students were very upset about the cancellation. And, you know, of course, many thought it was really wrongheaded and so on. Looking at that decision now, it seems quaint I mean, it would be inconceivable to send 900 students in batches of 24 around the world, right? It's just, you know, most of us are sheltered in place now. And so that, that was kind of the first. And then within a few days, more were coming out and more were coming out. And then the decision was made that people would not come back from spring break and yet that we would move every single class and that's probably 60,000 seat miles, if you will, just for HBS alone online within a week. But meanwhile, with every passing day, there's new realizations, new predictions, new decisions. The one that happened, I think just the day before yesterday was the cancellation of Harvard graduation. Mm. And that is, you know, normally a wonderfully celebratory day with people coming, families and students from all over the world to to celebrate their success and look forward to what comes next. And that's really a, you know, it's an unusual thing to have happen. And I feel badly for these students. And yet it's clearly the right decision. So with every passing day, we're getting new news, new decisions, new updating about what to expect. Well, the word grief comes back up again now that you've described that because you go to school for four years and work so very hard and you want that moment where it's all worth it. And I'm wondering if I know you're not going to have a physical graduation, but is there some thought being given to some alternative to give people a sense of completion? Oh, yes. An online version is being designed as we speak. There will be lots of smaller convenings. The undergraduate students are in what are called houses, which are 12 undergraduate communities. There will be some speeches to everyone, but then there will be gatherings, local electronic gatherings with undergraduate students by college house, the business school students by section, and on and on it goes. So all of that's being designed. It's really a remarkable 
sense of creativity and ingenuity to pull together and design something that will be meaningful. And it's thoughtful. And that's what's so wonderful mm-hmm. about it, because it's so easy to just be expeditious about all these things as you were describing, you know. So what was seemingly a bold decision three weeks ago now seems quaint and graduation seems impossible. So get on with it, move on. Right. And that's not what you're doing, which I think is a really important thing. And anybody who leaves and doesn't have that moment, I think that there's going to be a hole in them forever and you're filling it uh, as best you can. I commend to you and the university for thinking it and doing it. Yeah. Broadly, how are your students dealing with this? Yeah, I do think it's important to put it in perspective. Although we've had a number of generations who've been relatively untouched by large global events. It's not unheard of in history. There certainly were generations before us who had their studies interrupted by such things as Pearl Harbor and mm-hmm. and where one day to the next they're packing their bags to be shipped off and not know if they're coming back at all. So it's a we have to put things in perspective, not only historically, but just in terms of Yes, this is challenging, it's interesting, it's impressive what's happening, it's sad, it's a loss, there's grief, and I think it's our job to make the best of it. Totally agree with you. But making the best of it sometimes means leaning into being generous in the way that you're doing. So obviously a war, nobody's ever going to question. We get bombed at Pearl Harbor. People are signing up for the military and going to fight for their country. Nobody's thinking about, oh, I'm sure going to miss my graduation. They're thinking I've got to go make (laughs) that commitment, right? So this is slightly different and you're accommodating for it. And I just think that's great. So broadly, how are the students doing? I know you now you're teaching them remotely, but you're interacting with them and beyond the grief and beyond the change, Mm -hmm. are you seeing them, like, are you impressed that in the short run that they're just resilient and they're just moving on from this or are you picking up any other emotions? Yes, I am impressed. And 10 days ago, I guess it's 12 days ago now when, no, it's maybe it's two weeks ago when they first heard the news that they wouldn't be coming back. They were emotional, many of them tearful, um, some of them angry and upset. And and now I would say two weeks later, they're gung-ho. I mean, online learning isn't quite as exciting and fun as learning in our wonderful classrooms, but they're taking it on as the adventure that it is. They're putting clever backgrounds, virtual backgrounds behind them. They're using the technology to you know, raise their hands and get in. And I think they are finding, a couple of them have told me they're pleasantly surprised that the online learning is not as awful as they thought it would be. And there is a certain intimacy in it, in that you're the exact same distance from everybody's face. And you actually can't hide, you know, in the back row, 40 yards away from me in a regular classroom, you might be looking down, doing something else. It's a little harder to do in Zoom. Because you're looking at their faces in real time. What does that mean? Yeah, they're all there. They're all a foot away from me. Now, I can't see, I have 80 students. I can't see them all at once, but I can in three or four screens worth of mosaic students. I can see them all pretty quickly. And they can see each other. In the regular classroom, sometimes they're seeing the back of Mm -hmm. the heads Mm -hmm. of many of their colleagues. Now we're all facing forward. We're all looking at the, whether it's the slides or me in the exact same way. 
You're not leading me this way at all, but I wanted to ask this question nevertheless. Is there any reason for you, and and this is just between us and none of your students <laughs> have to know if the answer is yes, uh, but are you lowering the bar at all in terms of your expectations of what they do this semester? No, I'm definitely not. The only bar that is getting lowered is the temporal bar. And let me explain. Our case method classes are generally 80 minutes long. And they're still 80 minutes long. We're holding our classes at the exact same time they were normally held. And yet, because of the friction in an online platform, I mean, there's just little pauses between my calling on someone and them really recognizing it and unmuting and getting in there. I would say that in an 80-minute session, a normal case discussion that would take 80 minutes, we probably can cover what would be 60 minutes worth. Mm -hmm. So we're at risk of not necessarily going as deep into some of the material as we would otherwise. And that said, I am not letting up on their preparation. I'm cold calling them, meaning, Mark, I'd like you to open the case Mm -hmm. today Mm -hmm. and if you haven't done your homework, you're in trouble. You know, no one's going to help you out. So I'm not going to just look for a volunteer just because we're online. Well, I mean, I think this goes back to, you know, my question to you in terms of how you're dealing in your response was, I'm just dealing with it. I'm just like, you just step into it. This is yeah. what's called. This is my role now. And and right. so what I'm hearing from you, and obviously these are super intelligent MBA and other business students at Harvard University. So these are high achievers, super motivated people. So you might expect it from them. But in relationship to the behaviors that you saw when they were in your class, what I'm sensing from you is that they may be at home or, you know, in their basement somewhere, but they're inclined to do the work the way they've always done the work and no letting up. Absolutely. And I think they feel they owe it to their colleagues and to themselves. My second year students are going to finish. They're going to graduate in a couple of months and For most of them, probably 99% of them, this is a terminal degree. This is their last chance to be in a classroom in a degree program. And they want to get everything out of it that they can. Are you coaching them? In other words, I'm curious as to whether or not you're reminding them of this moment in time that has rattled everybody's lives and challenged them to see this as an opportunity to not just learn, but grow and even demonstrate a different kind of leadership? Is that all part of what's going on in these discussions you're having? You know, I have done that quite explicitly with my first-year students. I'm what's called a section chair for one of the first-year sections. So we have 900 students per year, so 1,800 altogether, and they are divided into 10 sections. So I have 90 students in my first year that I meet with all of them about four or five times a semester, and I'll meet with them one-on-one sometimes as well. And they're the ones who have really, because of my role with them, which is more like, you know, homeroom teacher, my role with them has, has led me to try to gently encourage them to not look at this as what am I losing, because they are losing, mm-hmm. but what can I do to make it better? You know, how can I contribute? How can I make the academics as good as they can be in this new normal? How can I make our social networks and section community as strong as it can be in this new normal? How can I help my colleagues who might not have a summer job yet get connected with my network and all of that? 
Well, but that's a very positive reframe, right? I mean, you're making yeah. sure that people aren't anchoring into the victim side of things right. and to see it more opportunistically. Right. Last Monday, so a week ago, this is now, what, 10 days ago, I got an email in the evening from my gym, and I'm like the religious guy who's there at 5.30 every day. And oh. so <laughs> you know, people are like, what? But it's just my ritual, and it's very helpful. And when it was taken away, I was like, okay, so what am I going to do? So the next morning, I got up at the same time, and I went down, and I walked the beach in the dark by myself. And it was just this, like, surreal, sublime experience. It was like nobody on the beach. I heard the water. It was beautiful. I watched the sunrise, and I thought I would not have had this experience had it not been for the fact that, you know, we've been forced indoors and into seclusion and gyms are closed. And it just sort of triggered me into thinking, there's a lot that's going to come out of this. It's going to be pretty good if you can approach it that way. It's true. If you can use it to allow yourself to be more present and to, you know, just to to look around and appreciate the moment more and, you know, be on the beach at 530 rather than in some indoor gym. I think that's pretty wonderful. It had sort of a transformative impact, too, because generally, you know, I probably shouldn't admit this, but generally when I go to the gym, the first thing I do is I get on a bike and I start responding to tweets that came in from the night before. And generally there's a lot. So I can spend 45 minutes, but I'm just going from bed to work in, you know, a matter of minutes. This way, you know, I'm having sort of like a totally different kind of an experience that leading to new ideas. And I'm glad that you said that because I think the worst thing that we can do is look at this like this is a loss. Everybody's in the same boat. And I think if we make the best of this, this is kind of what your students are doing and really stepping up. I think when companies first started asking their companies to work remotely in February, it wasn't really clear how long this was going to last. And Mm. we still don't really know. It's at least going to be for three more weeks. So now that it's likely to be our new reality, I'd like to transition and ask you, knowing that this is an audience interested in leading and managing in these times, what's the mindset that you think people need to be in yeah. besides, you know, being optimistic as well as, you know, not seeing themselves as a victim? I think the mindset has to be a learning mindset for two reasons. And then I'll describe what that is. But the two reasons are, for one, we don't know what's going to happen next. We can't see the future. We don't have a crystal ball. So we have to approach the future, which is every day, as a learning opportunity, as an opportunity to wake up and figure out what's going to happen today. What do I need to do today? How do I need to be with people? But the leadership mindset has to be one of openness to what's going on, conveying what you know, conveying just as importantly what you don't know, and letting it be clear to people that you're available to them, right? Because you don't know what's happening for them. So the leadership mindset right now needs to be a learning mindset, one that is open to what comes next and lets people know you're open to what comes next. What do you say to somebody who would respond to that by saying, well, you know, I kind of like certainty, (laughs) you know, ambiguity is not my friend. I like to control my environment. What would you say to them? So do I. (laughs) There's a need right now for reality thinking that part of the leader's job is to be upfront about 
what's going on about this isn't anybody's preferred situation, but this is what we have. And now we're going to make the most of it. So paint reality and be creative enough to provide some reasons for hope for the long term. I love this idea of, you know, reminding people that this is the reality. So you have to step into that. Yes. How long did it take you to make that shift? I know it was fluid. Yeah. I know you didn't have like a couple of days where you're like, I really got to get on board with the new reality. But yeah. I'm curious as to just how did you make that shift? Because obviously you're setting a brilliant example, but I'm wondering how you got there. You know, I don't know. It's probably more than a couple of days. The first couple of days at home, it's sort of a novelty. And then I think you know, it's maybe the stages of grief, right? Mm-hmm. But you don't quite believe this is really, well, this was a nice weekend, but I can't keep doing this, can I? And then as the sort of reality sets in, you realize I can and I will. It would be nice to have an expiration date, but we don't. Well, I'm curious also in terms of with your expertise in emotional and psychological safety, with people being little tabs on your computer as opposed to sitting in your classrooms and going to their dorms and going to parties and doing all the things college students do, they're losing that face-to-face connection Mm -hmm. with not just you as their professors, but their colleagues and just everybody, all their friends. And what's the thinking, what's your thinking in terms of how managers should best address this impact of loneliness or just this feeling of being adrift? First of all, my students absolutely, I'm I'm sure they don't miss me, but they absolutely, (laughs) that is a given that that for them is the most important loss. I certainly see that with my sons. They miss their roommates, they miss their friends, they miss hanging around with each other. My students at HBS have been remarkably creative in putting together lunches, small group lunches, meaning, you know, little Zoom groups where you bring your own sandwich, obviously, and and just connect and catch up. They've had some happy hours and they've deliberately convened different small groupings of people to just have a little hangout time and and try to stay connected Uh, because you're absolutely right. This is an important part of that graduate school or undergraduate school experience. How well is that working? Do you have a sense? Well, yeah, I mean, I think we're somewhere in the, it's a novelty stage. And so it's working well. They're psyched about it. I think they feel good about designing these things and executing and they're really happy to see each other. What I think is challenging is you need a new topic at some point. You can't just keep talking about COVID-19. But they do. I mean they have they have young children, they're in different different locations and and they have other things to catch up on as well. So they're doing the best they can to have some of the fun as well. And I hope that they're also enjoying their families, their partners their spouses, et cetera. Are you doing anything explicitly to drive greater collaboration independent of lunch and happy hour meetings where they're going on for fun? Are you wanting your students to do more of that so that they work on a project together and make sure that they keep contact? I am not, and not because that isn't a good idea or, in fact, a very typical kind of thing. The kind of course I have isn't doing that. I know that other courses have those kinds of projects. My course is giving them enough work to do as it is, and that's both of the courses. So, 
you know, it's just not something we're doing. I'm sure that each and every one of them have some kind of projects going on and collaboration going on. Do you have any guidance or advice to people who are not necessarily managing from home, but specifically are working from home? Like if you've got a spouse at home that's going through the same mm-hmm. thing and you've got a child at home that's going through the yeah. same thing and, you know, the schools now are asking for work to oh. be done. Is there any maneuvering that you've figured out is helpful advice? There are no silver bullets here, no surprising or fantastic answers, but a few, I think, maybe practical and maybe obvious responses are focus, you know, wake up in the morning and decide what needs to get done today and maybe what doesn't. Make that list, you know, sit down and tackle some of the hard things first thing in the morning, not before breakfast, but, you know, first thing in the work morning and build in breaks. I find it very important not to just be sitting for however many hours in a row. You've got to stand up, do a load of laundry, build in a break. Laundry is a great deal of fun when you think about it that way. But just focus, structure. Structure is your friend if you can. And I think it's pretty important, especially if your spouse is also working at home, as mine is, to have a door between you because he's on lots of calls, I'm on lots of calls. And, you know, we need to be disciplined and focused and structured. And then we need to come out and be a family. So are managers wise to sort of lighten up a little bit? I didn't ask you earlier about whether you think managers should be more accommodating in terms of lowering the bar from a goal standpoint, but in terms of just the big picture of what everybody's having to deal with, how do you guide them on that? So I wouldn't frame it as lowering the bar, but I do think expectations have to be recalculated. If you have let's say, young children at home who need to be taught algebra for part of the day, you're going to have less time available. And that has to be acceptable because the schooling, the learning of the young can't just come to a complete halt. And some people are taking care of sick family members and some people are dealing with all sorts of other challenges. So yes, I mean, 100% yes, managers everywhere need to be accommodating, empathic, aware, sensitive to the reality that different people have different constraints. Some people at home are dealing with the challenge of just loneliness. They might live alone. Going to the office is an important part of their sense of connectedness and purpose, and now they don't have that. Other people are at home with crying babies and or moping teenagers, you name it. So yes, that ability to be sensitive to different people having different needs and constraints is mission critical. Well, I certainly didn't mean to imply lowering the bar in terms of giving people a pass. It's more in the nuance of what you just described, which is to realize, you know, if you're the boss who like, hey, I'm just going to call you know, Amy and say, hey, I need this in the next hour. That day is over right now. Right. So you need to say, hey, I'm really hoping to get this, but let me check. What's going on for you right now? Where are you? Am I finding you at a good time? Love that. That's great. That's really, really good. So cool. I know this is speculation, but do you have a sense of whether people are, you know, based on what you're seeing so far, do you think, I've seen predictions that say people are never going to want to go back to working in an (laughs) office after being at home. And I'm curious as to whether or not you want to weigh in on that, if you think there might be a different answer or if that is the answer. 
Well, I think it's going to be different for different people. I think there are going to be a large number of people who can't wait to get back to the office. I mean, there is a certain sense of connection and importance of getting up and going to an office that I suspect many people miss. But that said, given that you discover you can get certain kinds of things done, say writing a report or doing some really challenging analytic work, better in a quiet space with no distractions and maybe not even needing to dress up for it, I suspect there will be people wanting a great deal more flexibility. So certain days and certain tasks might be better done remotely and other days and other tasks are better done at work with other people. So more of a hybrid is what I'm hearing. Yeah, face-to-face meetings are going to be better for most kinds of complex decision-making and innovation projects, but there's an awful lot of work that isn't done best face-to-face. There's a hilarious video that I saw on YouTube. It's a woman who's a mother of four children in Italy, and she's complaining about the ridiculous expectations that the teachers have. Like She's like, how am I going to get all four kids sitting in front of a computer talking to four different teachers? And she goes, I don't even know the material. And so that just puts a lot of pressure on not just parents, but also children. So since you're a mom and an educator, any guidance on how to help parents get their kids through this in terms of making the best out of their learning and that's all remote as well? So let me offer three levers and then a comment. And the, the three levers, the three tools that you have as a parent are one, model the behavior. And to me, that's the most powerful one. That's going to account for more of the variance in your child's enthusiasm and determination to do his or her schoolwork than any other. So basically, if you're working hard, if you're taking it seriously, they kind of want to do that too. And number two, explaining and clarifying what you hope to see and and why it matters. And then number three, coaching, you know, giving them feedback. So essentially, you're trying to shape their behavior, first and foremost, by modeling, second, by explaining, and third, by giving feedback and coaching. And the final thing I want to say about that is, It's important to have empathy. It's important to remind yourself that this is not what they love either, right? That they they wish it were otherwise. And just to imagine yourself in their shoes and imagine that they are probably trying for the most part to do the best they can and respond with just a little bit of humor and indulgence. Good for all of us. Those are wonderful. So thank you. I'm really glad I asked that question. The broad purpose of this discussion really is What are the most meaningful things that we can do in leading people right now Mm. concurrent with getting the work done? Mm. Because like we've been talking about, it's like you got to step up. This is the new environment. The demands haven't backed off. We still have to do the work. But there are many people-oriented kinds of implications of this. The loneliness, the grief, the, the disappointment, the loss, all of those kinds of feelings, the change. So just before I let you go, I'd love for you just to weigh in on what's the big picture here? What do managers most need to know right now? I suppose they most need to know that they are required to care. They're required to be fundamentally 
other oriented. If you're a manager, that's a responsibility. And that responsibility comes first and foremost with caring, with caring about what your direct reports are feeling, seeing up against and trying to ease some of that burden for them by being more clear and more explicit and more flexible, as we talked about before. So managing is fundamentally a job of caring because it's a job of caring about what it is we're trying to get done for the customers, for the world, but also caring about the people that you are working with and developing to do that work well. And I think when it's not clear to them that you care about them as well as about the results, they won't do as well and you won't be as good a manager. So being, as we talked about earlier, very clear and acknowledging the reality, the unfortunate reality that we're all up against is job one and job two is really caring, expressing that caring, keeping the lines of communication even more open than you do normally. When we're all working at a distance, we have to be a great deal more heavy handed in making sure we're communicating than in ordinary times. This just happens more naturally. I think managers are feeling those that may not have that caring gene, if you will, or just an instinct to do it, you know, out of their normal managerial behavior up until two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. So they're forced into it and they know academically that they need to be more caring. Mm -hmm. What does it look like? What are some of those key behaviors? If you only do one or two things, do these things. Because I think that's kind of the missing piece. I know I need to be caring, but... You know, I still have my family and my challenges and I'm working out of my garage and, you know, all that. I think force yourself to be curious because you can sort of trigger the process of caring through a process of perspective taking. So if you think, huh, I wonder what he or she is up against. I wonder what it's like for them. I wonder what they're grappling with. You might then want to know the answer to those questions. And then you'd be naturally likely to ask a question or two at the beginning of the meeting rather than just dive right into what you need. So if you're curious you then might want to know what's going on for them. And that in itself is a form of caring when you express that interest. Yeah, just by asking people. I think the risk is asking people how they are and then saying, okay, where are you on this project and and not making it sincere. That's right. It has to be sincere. And also, we're all getting a little tired of the question, how are you? I mean, rotten or, you know, scared or... But um, just, I think, more concretely, is now a good time? What are you up against? Hey, what are you seeing in the project? If we've sort of gotten over that little hurdle of nothing is blocking them from actually engaging on the task right now with you, then let's talk about the work itself in a thoughtful way. What are you seeing? Here's how I see it, but I may be missing something. What are you seeing? What help do you need? What ideas do you have? I just saw that Starbucks has decided as an example of an organization that is saying, we're not letting anybody go. We're just going to pay them for the month. Mm -hmm. They're just writing a check and they're paying people, all their employees who aren't working in stores. They're paying them for 30 days, intending hopefully that they'll Mm -hmm. be back in business in 30 days. And if not, perhaps they'll revisit that. That's going to come at a great cost. Are you seeing more companies thinking this way through this? Or are they thinking more in terms of this is going to affect the shareholders, so we've got to make hard decisions? Well, I think it's a mix, but you could frame that as a cost. You could also frame it as an investment. It's an incredible investment in goodwill 
and commitment and retention. Retention is one of the most expensive forces in any service business, for example. So if you can lower retention, hiring is expensive, training is expensive. If you can increase your retention and lower your attrition of your employees, that will pay for itself. And let's hope it's 30 days because I think then the investment is easy. I don't think it's even hard at all. I think companies that don't see that are missing the big picture. It'll, of course, be one of those many factors that needs to be subject to constant updating as we see how long this goes. But I see that as a smart business decision. You also see it as um, sort of a quid pro quo, meaning that for people that worked in organizations that made the alternative decision that actually did see it as a cost, do you think they'll have a greater chance of losing a lot of people? In other words, people won't come back to those jobs or do you think people will just flock to them regardless? Well, they'll come back if that's the only job they have. If they have an alternative with one of those other companies that proves to be a better employer, that's where they'll go. It's a real time for leaders to step up, isn't it? Yes, it is. And stepping up isn't stepping up to the easy things. It's stepping up to the hard things. I appreciate that. And we'll leave it there unless there's any last final thoughts you'd like to give us. I appreciate the time and the trust that you've placed in me to have this conversation. I wish I had a crystal ball and better answers. No, I think that's very honest. I don't think anybody has a crystal ball. We're all dealing with the ambiguity. Mm -hmm. You've done a great job of putting some walls up that weren't there. You've got a foundation you're working off of. You've got, mm-hmm. you know, you know what I'm saying? In terms of building a house to operate from, I think you've done a brilliant job. And so your insight is very, very helpful. And the other thing I would say is, and this is the absolute truth, is that you're the only person that came to my mind. Huh. And there are a lot of people that have a lot of experience. I just know intuitively that you would bring the breadth of insight that you did today. And so on behalf of everyone, this is a very special edition of the podcast. And I just can't thank you enough for making time to do it, for your thoughtful answers and just being you. So thank you very much, Amy. You're more than welcome. Best to you. You too. Go tell your son to start playing the piano. Yeah. Okay. Will do. All right. Have a lovely evening. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Before we go, I just want to once again thank Amy Evanson. Make sure you know that she joined us very late in her day in the middle of her first very exhausting week back teaching, doing it remotely for the first time. So she easily could have justified not joining us for this, but she did. And I am very grateful. Also hope very much that you'll share this episode with your friends and especially colleagues, noting we're all very much in this together. And sharing Amy's wisdom, I think, will go a long ways to helping a lot of organizations. I also want to thank my sound engineer and producer, Eric Oz, who not only quickly got this episode ready for us, but he managed to do it while caring for his own young daughter at home while her mother was also down with the flu. So a lot of generosity went into the show. And in the spirit of using this time wisely, I encourage you to pick up a copy of Amy's book, The Fearless Organization, and not to forget my own, Bleed from the Heart, Transformational Leadership for the 21st Century. And until next time, I leave you with my steady reminder, when you leave from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley, signing off for now. 